Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Today, we will be exploring the landscape of glaucoma treatment, Israel's medtexine, and being a woman in life sciences through our chat with Mrs. Daria Lehman Blumenthal, CEO of Belkin Laser, an Israeli ophthalmology device company. Belkin Laser is developing an automated one-second laser device aimed at revolutionizing accessibility to glaucoma care worldwide by becoming the first-line choice for glaucoma therapy for every patient. Belkin Laser is addressing the growing disparity between the enormous number of glaucoma patients, which is 80 million, and the limited number of ophthalmologists, which is 212,000, by enabling the doctor to treat many more patients. Belkin's innovative technology is applicable for the prevalent open-angle glaucoma, which constitutes 70% of total glaucoma patients, and it will pioneer laser treatment for angle-closure glaucoma, which is most common among Asian populations. Most recently, Daria and her team have successfully raised a 12.25 million Series B round in July 2020. Irene and Suman actually worked directly with Daria and the founder of Belkin Laser, Professor Michael Belkin, as undergraduates. It has been a great honor to have them as mentors, and we are very excited for our conversation. Hi, Daria. Thank you so much for joining us today. And it's really great to connect with you again after we work together back at Penn. And we would love to share your story with our listeners and audience, many of whom are actually aspiring innovators and entrepreneurs themselves. So could you share with us your story and what inspired you to take on Belkin Laser as the CEO? Sure. So let me give you a bit of a background. And of course, thank you very much, Irene, Simone, Shabnam, Louisa, for this opportunity. I appreciate it. So I was born and raised in Israel. Uh, my parental grandparents uh, were both ophthalmologists in Berlin, Germany in the early uh, 1930s. And fortunately escaped Germany and uh, immigrated to Israel in 1933. My father, Professor Michael Blumenthal, was born in Tiberias, Israel, and became one of the most famous uh, innovators and leaders in ophthalmology. He was one of the best cataract surgeons uh, worldwide. My father was also the only Israeli who served as the president of the European Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. So obviously, ophthalmology is uh, in my blood. Being an empowered woman is also something I grew up with, as my beloved mother, Nomi Blumenthal, uh, is a former member of parliament in Israel. So I have very good uh, personal example from her. If you want, you can. And if you do, there will be. If you don't initiate or execute, don't expect others uh, to do it for you. So these are the values I was uh, raised on. I'm a lawyer by profession. My LLB is from Jerusalem University. However, I never practiced law. Instead, I managed the largest private eye hospital in Israel, Intel, for six years. And right afterwards, I did my executive MBA at Tel Aviv University. When I graduated, honestly, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, as part of my thinking, I met with a childhood friend of my brother, 
a serial entrepreneur, Dr. Eyal Rion. He then worked at Rad Biomed Accelerator. He had told me then that leading a startup company would be the perfect fit for me and immediately arranged a meeting with David Zygdon, then the CEO and president of the Accelerator. At the same time, Professor Michael Belkin, the founder of Belkin Laser, approached the Accelerator as an entrepreneur when the company was just an idea and asked them to accept the project and uh, find the right CEO to lead the future company. Professor Belkin was an entrepreneur already having sold one of his companies and had uh, abundant experience with transforming an idea into reality. He knew that he couldn't do it by himself um, and everything came together. So David told Professor Belkin that he had the perfect CEO for the company. Professor Belkin laughed. Uh, he knew me since I was a baby. My father was his mentor. Uh, the company is now seven years old and I can tell you that uh, I'm blessed to work with uh, a founder that gives full trust and credit uh, to the CEO. And all the rest is uh, history, as they say. Mm -hmm. And you're currently in the process of making history. Belkin Laser is doing very well. And we know the technology as we worked with you. Um, it's a technology that will make glaucoma care accessible. And that is motto and the thinking behind the technology and the translation of the technology in the commercial world. And it says that on your website as well. So I want to dig a little deeper here. Um, would you be able to share a quick overview of Belkin Laser and how you believe that Belkin laser is solving access to glaucoma care. Let me give you a quick overview for our listeners who are not very familiar with glaucoma. So glaucoma is the leading cause of irreversible blindness globally. 80 million people worldwide have glaucoma. It's a disease of the optic nerve, which means it doesn't have a cure but its progression can be delayed with proper treatment. High ocular tension uh, is the only treatable risk factor of the disease that's all current treatments focus on lowering the IOP and keeping it there. When a glaucoma patient is diagnosed, the doctor is in most cases still uh, offers eye drops as a first line treatment. And I'm sure it sounds great non-invasive, can be done at home. Reality is different. Compliance rate of glaucoma eye drops is a known weakness. After one year, only about half of the patients in the US continue with their treatment regimen. Why? Because uh, it's hard to instill eye drops every day, a couple of times a day for years on end. It causes red eye irritation, ocular surface disease, patients forget. It's a burden. It's a huge burden. So laser for glaucoma is a first-line treatment before eye drops has existed for many years, but wasn't really adopted. However, last year, uh, it received the attention it deserves with the light trial led by Professor Gus Gazard, which was published in The Lancet. Uh, this trial found that laser is more cost-effective than eye drops as the first-line treatment. Laser for glaucoma is becoming more and more popular in the USA. Why? Because it overcomes compliance. It increases quality of life substantially. It replaces the need for daily eye drops while being, uh, of course, effective 
it eliminates ocular surface disease and delays the need for invasive surgery. So now, let me tell you it's about our uh, technology. One of the major drawbacks of the current laser treatment, uh, SLT, is that it requires expertise. It involves prolonged contact with the eye for about 10 minutes when the doctor rotates a lens on the patient's eye and manually delivers 100 laser beams, one after the other, to the treatment area in the eye. Practically, it's used mainly by glaucoma specialists, while there are so many ophthalmologists who don't use this treatment option. Our technology is automated. It doesn't involve contact with the eye. It is painless. It takes a few seconds. The consequences are clear. It means that any ophthalmologist can use the technology easily and offer laser procedure to any of their patients. It means that a much higher number of ophthalmologists will use the device so that any patient will have access to glaucoma care with a higher quality of life. Let me give you a very simple comparison between washing your laundry by hand or using a laundry machine where the machine does the work for you also important to mention is that our technology, Belkin Lasers technology, will pioneer treatment for angle closure glaucoma, which is most common in Asian populations. Uh, we are starting clinical trials in China and Singapore next year. I see. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, Professor Belkin, and I remember we had a few Zoom calls with him during our time at Penn, and he was he was awesome. He was so passionate and driven and He's an amazing scientist and an innovator, like you said. And yourself, Daria, you're a serial chief executive, a businesswoman that brings years of managerial experience, including business development, project management, and team leadership. So I want to ask, how do you work with Dr. Belkin, who is a scientist by nature, but also entrepreneur, in order to ensure that science is able to solve the world's unmet need most effectively? And also in answering that question, would Love your advice on, you know, women who are trying to build and lead companies by collaborating with scientists, but not scientists themselves. So first, Professor Belkin, as you mentioned, has a natural sense for innovation. But on top of it, he has the experience and wisdom to know that there is a long, hard and almost impossible journey ahead in order to execute on the scientific idea. A great idea isn't enough. For success. One of the most prominent leaders in the ophthalmic industry uh, told me recently that uh, a killer technology has to be paired with a killer strategy. And I completely agree. So collaborating with scientists is easy. However, the scientist has to be open to entrusting his uh, ID, his baby, to someone else and to trust others uh, to raise this child to be an adult. Um, recognizing the greater good that will come out of uh, letting go. So if these ingredients aren't present, then it would be very difficult to take a good idea and uh, execute on it. I think what you said about, you know, somehow they need to let go, but also as a CEO and also the a partner, having to you know, communicate that and making sure that transition is more seamless and you're able to collaborate them closely, I think it's very important. this is a good segue into talking about how translating the years of science and trial and error that the Dr. Belkin went through in producing the idea and the device and bringing it to the market and bringing it to the patients. 
So how do you go about partnering with certain institutions like CROs or contract research organizations and eye hospitals across the country to assure that your device is being tested in the right patients? Shabnam, actually, this is a very relevant question, which we struggle with daily. First, I leverage my core team with relevant expertise. For example, our medical advisory board, our board members, and they I would approach my fellow CEOs to seek for their advice and experience. This to answer how do we choose the hospitals? How do we choose the principal investigators we, we want to work with? That's why you build your team. And that's why you choose the key opinion leaders uh, to be part of your medical advisory board. That's exactly who should support you with this critical decisions. So, and you asked about CROs, which is definitely relevant to uh, the clinical trials. One of the, uh, our main challenges are uh, recruiting early stage patients who are usually seen by community doctors. You know, each country has its own policies. Uh, most regulatory bodies don't allow compensation for referring doctors. Some allow advertising, others don't. It's hard to incentivize physicians uh, to send patients to the trial. But if you build the right plan, it can be done. I would say that my role as a CEO is to make sure the company has the required capital to move forward, but also the best people to lead the company. I have to ensure that our leadership team has the perfect skills to solve these challenges. With regard to um, CROs, the clinical research organizations, currently for our uh, randomized controlled trial in Europe, we don't work with CRO. We coordinate the work uh, with advisors, monitors, but in our future trials in China next year, we will work with the CRO. So, for example, for our activities in China, we work very closely with our Chinese investors and board members. I would say bottom line is that recruiting patients is a huge challenge for everyone, especially during COVID-19 times, but it's possible if you have the right people on your team and you adjust accordingly and stay nimble. Yeah. Yes, it certainly is. Regardless of the treatment modality, whether it's small molecule or devices, it's always hard to recruit patients. You mentioned that you're starting a trial in China. So I imagine that there are different regulatory requirements for like in Israel versus China, Europe, US. How are you able to balance the these regulatory requirements? Because I imagine your goal is to bring this technology to the 80 million people around the world that have glaucoma. So how do you go about balancing these? So first, we work closely with advisors for each of the mentioned markets, okay? So first, of course, we have to decide which markets are our focus, okay? And once we decided this, we work closely with advisors for each of the mentioned markets. And in specific markets, we also have in-house, uh, let's say, country managers to help bridge the language and cultural gap, and namely China and Japan. So when we established our regulatory strategy, we defined which markets are most important for us and made sure to adjust our processes and comply with the relevant uh, regulatory requirements. It's something that you have to define early in the process. 
I'm glad you brought up the point about the cultural sensitivities and such when it comes to clinical trial design, because that is often overlooked. And, and I remember my courses in undergrad, we would delve into those aspects. So I'm glad that you brought up that point. Now, when you talk, when you say that, you know, you, you take very good care in terms of identifying which markets to go into. I imagine that one component is the number of patients that are available to be treated in that population. But beyond that, what are some other factors that you take into consideration? Like, for example, in your decision to go to China and other and other markets? Different countries have different challenges. So I can tell you, for example, the U.S. market is the biggest market, okay, with regard to revenue, not necessarily to patients. China is the largest market with regard to potential, a potential market, but it's harder to penetrate. It's a more conservative market. It's definitely not the largest market with regard to uh, revenue. So we have to look about this uh, balance. Okay, we have to look what happens now, currently, and what will happen in the future. And also, what is our value proposition and how this fits the different markets. So as I mentioned before, we are pioneering pioneering treatment for angle closure glaucoma, which is uh, much more prevalent in China. So in this aspect, China is a great market for us. And uh, it's not a surprise that most of our investors are from Asia currently. Uh, And for Israeli companies, Europe would usually be the first market because we would usually uh, seek CE mark first before FDA. So it's a mixture of considerations. I'm sure we can talk hours on end about <laughs> about the, the regulatory aspects of bringing a device to market. But I, I think, you know, just to round out this discussion about the regulatory piece, what's a, one piece of advice that you would give to our listeners who are interested in, in commercializing a medical device, whether it's in the U.S. or abroad? For Israeli companies, it's a bit different, uh, let's say, than U.S. companies. Usually, U.S. companies are more focused on the uh, local market. They know the market. It's a very lucrative market. So for Israeli companies, the considerations are a bit different. And I think there are even maybe more opportunities for out of U.S. companies because Israel is very small, so we are open to more markets and we can consider starting in other markets first or taking into consideration other markets. So Daria, from our reading and experience with Belkin Laser, we had heard that Israel has a very active medtech and biotech scene and really caters to global markets like Belkin Laser is doing right now. Could you tell us a little bit more about the medtech scene in Israel? We would love to learn more. Israel has been dubbed the startup nation and for a very good reason. We have 21 startups for every 1,400 people, which is enormous. This is a large amount. There is a large amount of entrepreneurship in Israel. It's uh, the Innovation Authority in Israel is in charge of setting out the nation's tech policies and fostering the tech ecosystem. And in general, there is a very strong entrepreneurial spirit in Israel. And I'd say positive chutzpah, if you know this word. Chutzpah is uh, maybe, I would say, the ability to dare without being paralyzed by fear of failure. 
it's a good word and uh, represents very well uh, Israelis. You also have to remember that Israel has very scarce natural resources. Our only hope for survival is uh, our human capital. And this uh, reflects everywhere on our strengths and weaknesses. Another special characteristic I'd uh, want to tell you about is our startup culture is a very productive collaboration. For example, I'm part of several medtech, biomed, ophthalmology startup groups. I'm so proud of the mutual cooperation and generosity that I see. Of course, each one of us wants to succeed, and there is obviously a competition, but the level of openness, support, and advice is uh, remarkable. This is not a secret, you know, like all for one and one for all, and, and that's real. In Israel, it's real. I'm very proud of it. That sounds like a great community to be part of. And the fact that it's not just a sector in Israel, it's more of like the whole life sciences community in Israel is collaborating and making sure that others succeed. Yeah, Irene and I can tell you that uh, we have a very large group of women in healthcare. It's an amazing group. We have, you know, the Telegram, the WhatsApp. Yeah, yeah, we learn a lot. It's very effective, very efficient. And these are great ways to find the people you want to recruit, ask for advice. You never choose a CRO without first posting, you know, a question on a group and ask people's experience, and you'll get the real and true and most candid uh, answers. Wow, that is the greatest resource that you can have, really, like the truthful reviews and opinions and experiences of people who've just been through it a step ahead of you. And uh, a little more about the Israeli companies. I'm sure you've dealt with this as Belkin Laser works with investors abroad, such as the U.S. investors. So what do you think is the appeal of Israeli medtech companies to the U.S. investors? What's been your experience trying to attract these investors from the U.S., you know, as well as worldwide? Okay, so about the U.S., it may look that culturally we share many of the same characteristics. So we are both driven, direct, we are very innovative. But there is a but, there is a cultural shock for Israeli companies when doing business together. U.S. investors, VCs, are very focused on the U.S. market. They want the company they invest in to be just around the corner, not too far from them. There are many that specifically state they invest only in U.S. companies. And even those, you can find those from VCs in California that won't invest in startups from the East Coast and vice versa. I've learned that it's um, a closed group and based very much on relationships and uh, prior connections. It's extremely hard to penetrate these circles, especially for an Israel company, which is overseas, it's far. A few years ago, I told our medical advisory board chairman, Dr. Richard Lindstrom, that I speak English. You know, it's not, I'm not fluent, it's my second language, but I don't speak American. And I do hope to learn how to succeed in this market as well. And I'm sure we will. Certainly. I mean, English is my second language too. Korean is my first. But then I learned my English in England. 
so my accent is gone, but I felt like when I came to America, it was a different language I was learning. So I, I completely feel that. <laughs> Daria, we sort of discussed a little bit about your role as such a prominent CEO, but you're also a mother and not only a leader in biotech and medtech in Israel, but a mother of five. And we'd love to sort of hear how that's sort of going and and how do you manage it all? Yes, uh, you can manage it all. It is possible, but there is a big but, okay? So first, you have to make a decision that this is what you want, a family and a career, and then you need the support from home. And when I say support, it's both emotional and financial. My parents always uh, believed in me. They gave me confidence, uh, specifically told me, You don't have to choose traditionally female professions. The feeling I carry with me every day is that I can do it and that it all depends on me. The other aspect is financial support. If you want a family and at the same time a meaningful career, uh, you need help in many aspects. Housekeeping, nanny, babysitters, tutors to help the kids with homework. For that, a woman has to realize that she'll need to pay a large chunk of her income for help. And in the first years, you'll need support from home. This is perhaps not what you want to hear, but that's uh, how it is for me at least. You know, when I had uh, my first child, Uriah, I was uh, 30 years old. I was already a CEO of a private eye hospital. I consciously told myself, if you want to be at home mother, this is totally legitimate. Go ahead. But don't complain 20 years later that you didn't have a career. And I made a choice to have a large family and a career. This means I needed help. Now, the kids know that mommy's work is a substantial part of my life. They are proud and they respect it. Of course, from time to time, I hear, you know, uh, mom, you only care about work, uh, but I have zero guilt. Um, I know that this is the best education for them, you know, to lead by example. Needless to say, my husband is a great supporter of me and what I'm doing, but don't be mistaken, it's very challenging to maintain a healthy partnership when I'm working so much and this decision has to be mutual or at least very clear what the implications are. My husband knows I need my time, I need my independence, I need my work. All these are essential for my well-being. Just for, for clarity, I'm, I'm not criticizing any woman that chooses to put more emphasis on her family life or is unable to combine the two because of reasons I mentioned. I do wish that parents and especially mothers would present their daughters with the full possibilities and let them choose, emphasizing they can do anything they'd like and give them the, the proper tools and, and support to do so. Totally agree with you. I think that really hits home, at least from my perspective, being brought up by two very eager parents. And when your children are a little bit older and they begin to share your story with their classmates and their friends, and they'll realize not just the sacrifice, but just how successful you were in in overcoming such a big feat and serving humanity in like the most humble way. So I think that's just very endearing to hear. And I love it. I definitely agree. It's a personal decision. Another question we had was sort of zooming out a little bit more and 
thinking about more of the policy and more administrative aspects, women running mm. med tech companies. So do yeah. you think from a more policy standpoint that women are supported in ventures? I remember we had discussed in our prior conversations about childcare and maternity leave and these types of things. How do you think Israel's doing in terms of support for women as CEOs and globally? Israel is doing a lot for mothers. Uh, of course, you can always do more. You know, all the North European countries, Scandinavian countries, they are doing a lot in this aspect. Israel is uh, doing a lot for working mothers. But as you already know, uh, my viewpoint is that the support has to be there when this woman is born. When the entrepreneur woman gets to the stage when she needs support in starting her med tech company, she's already, in my opinion, in a very good position. So the key issues I see are ensuring that women are exposed early and often to all career options. Again, when she gets to the stage of starting her own med tech company, it's important that she get the same objective support as anyone else. What she'll really need as a woman, I think, is the support from home. What are the qualities you think that really give women a leg up almost in, in starting these types of companies or in leadership in general? I didn't, of course, do any statistical study. I can tell you only with my experience or my thoughts. I think that women are usually more collaborative. They are less ego-driven. They care more about the well-being of the team, more emotional, empathetic. I think, again, that they can sense better what the other person in front of them feels and thus have a different way of leadership. Um, it's maybe better. It's maybe not. But in my opinion, it's, it's different. I'd argue that women and especially working moms are usually very focused on their work during work hours and making them much more efficient. You know, I personally uh, like, love to talk with people. I love to ask questions. I never pretend to know everything. By the way, I was criticized about it by one of my fellow male colleagues who thought it reflects weakness. But I see it uh, just at the opposite. It is uh, a strength to share your thoughts, concerns, and uh, learn from others. Recently, I learned a new term, imposter syndrome where you feel like you don't deserve to be doing the job you're doing or don't feel qualified enough. Women are usually more apologetic. They ask for less, so they earn less. They say sorry too often and are overly grateful. I'm working hard <laughs> to empower my female team members to refrain from this tendency and be more confident and present. Another important aspect we have to remember, something not specific maybe of being a female leader, but an advantage in that being a CEO of a company is also being a great in marketing. I've never thought I had this uh, skills until I had to keep our company going, tell our story the best possible way, attract team members to join us, convince investors to put their faith in us. Then I realized how important these skills are of being able to understand the other side, their thoughts, their interests, uh, and really care about them. I love people, interaction, relationships, and when this is genuine, for me, this is the key to anything. That's how you form a successful relationship. 
Um, today, I can tell you we have amazing investors, directors, of course, team members, our board members. I, I, I feel proud to work with. On our board, we are three women, uh, four men, and I love working with all of them. I'm lucky. I think you're setting a good example for all of these companies to come. I can totally uh, sort of see where you're coming from with the imposter syndrome. And I'm glad you're telling your, I guess, your mentees about being more cognizant of using sorry and exclamation points in the emails or even just. I realize that's, that's a word that I tend to use when I speak to folks over email. So I definitely can see where you're coming from. Because um, you want to be courteous and you know professional, but you also don't want to sort of undersell yourself as not only a young person, but also as a female. As Simone, I agree. And don't think it, I was born with it, right? You have to learn it and you have to be very conscious of this and you have to work with yourself. This is a hard work. Thank you so much, Daria, for taking the time to speak with us and share your story. I mean, you're certainly a superwoman and, and you've really highlighted for us, like as women, like the, some of the qualities that we bring to the table that, and I think one of the key ones is just our ability to create these relationships. And these relationships are pivotal, like in the story of Belkin Laser, your relationship with Dr. Belkin, kind of complementing his scientific background with your business expertise, the relationships you have with your advisors, that really helps in terms of building, like planning out the regulatory process and the relationships you have at home and with your family and having that support system, which is so pivotal in terms of being able to balance the responsibilities at home and um, and in the workplace. So I'm just like you know, wrapping up and leaving our listeners with like one final thought. What would you say to them? My best advice for the businesswoman, maybe also the businessman, <laughs> is to surround yourself with the good people who believe in you. Uh, persist, ask, find creative solution, work hard, and don't give up having a family, even a large one. My message as a woman leader in healthcare is that, yes, it is possible to have it all. However, you have to be very aware of the price you will pay to do it all, purposefully planning your life and making conscious decisions are critical to success. When I make decisions in life, I try to imagine myself at the age of 80, looking back and thinking to myself, will I be happy with this decision? If I'm proud and fulfilled, then it's a yes. Thank you all so much for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare and our website at theahc.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests.